everyone, and welcome to the Writer's Book Club podcast. This is the writing podcast where we take a deep dive with an author into the writing craft and process behind one of their books. This month, you're going to meet the wonderful Tony Jordan, and together we're going to dive into the writing process behind Tony's latest novel, Dinner with the Schnabels. I've been a huge fan of Tony's for a really long time. You just know whenever you pick up one of her books that you're in for a really wonderful story. Her characters are funny and flawed and complex, and you just can't help loving them. You also know that you're in for a laugh. Tony has the kind of wry sense of humour that I adore, and it's such a delight when it appears on the page. She's really one of our most brilliant and versatile writers. Tony has a fantastic exercise for writers at the end of our chat, so make sure you have a listen out for that. So, let me tell you a bit more about Tony Jordan. She's the author of six novels. Her debut, the international bestseller edition, was longlisted for the Miles Franklin Award and won the Indie Award for Best First Book. Nine Days was awarded Best Fiction at the 2012 Indie Awards and was named in Kirkus Review's Top 10 Historical Novels of 2013. Her 2016 novel, Our Tiny Useless Hearts, was long-listed for the International Dublin Literary Award. Tony has been published widely in newspapers and magazines, and she holds a Bachelor of Science in Physiology and a PhD in Creative Arts. And just wait until you hear about her thesis. We have a chat about that as well, and it's fantastic. Tony's latest novel is the one we discuss in today's episode, Dinner with the Schnabels. For those of you who haven't read it yet, it's a novel about marriage, love and family. Here's the blurb. Things haven't gone well for Simon Larson lately. He adores his wife Tansy and his children, but since his business failed and he lost the family home, he can't seem to get off the couch. Simon is permanently unemployed and permanently unshaven. His larger-than-life in-laws, the Schnabels, Tansy's mother, sister and brother, won't get off his case. To keep everyone happy, Simon needs to do just one little job. He has a week to landscape a friend's backyard for an important Schnabel family event. But as the week progresses, Simon is derailed by the arrival of an unexpected house guest. Then he discovers Tansy, his wife, is harbouring a secret. As his world spins out of control, Simon wonders who he can really count on when the chips are down. So there you go. Without further ado, let's dive into my writing chat with the fabulous Tony Jordan. Tony Jordan, it's delightful to meet you. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. It's an absolute pleasure, Michelle. Now, I'm a long-term fan of your writing. I think I started with Our Tiny Useless Hearts and then... I thought, oh, well, Tony Jordan writes comedy, you know, and I thought I knew what I was getting into when I then picked up Edition. <laughs> no, right. completely different. Yep. And then I think I read The Fragments and then I moved on to Nine Days. And, I mean, you write so beautifully <laughs> across so many different genres and so capably across them as well. What's the common thread for you when you get an idea for a novel and how do you come to a decision about how or what sort of style it will be written in? It's, it's a problem. <laughs> First of all, let me say it's a problem. And I know uh, there are uh, writers and emerging writers listening, so I want to stress that this is a problem. This is probably not something to aspire to because all you tend to do is, as I have, confuse people in publishing and, and booksellers and readers. Um, the common thread is that 
I just find it so difficult to come up with an idea for a novel that I'm going to find really enthralling. I've got to be really enthralled um, because I need to, part of my thing is I need to enjoy every day. I need to sit down and really find it a fascinating project. And it's just not that common for me to grab, to have an idea that is going to be that fantastic that's going to keep me occupied for that period of time. So I think a lot of it is just that um, it's rare for me to have fantastic ideas and once I get one, I don't want to waste it. Do so not I let just, it go. <laughs> I, yeah, that's exactly it. I try and make everything work. So as soon as I get an idea for something, I think, oh, that's a fantastic idea. You know, I can see myself, you know, being absorbed in this. Um, what skills do I now need to to learn that I currently don't have in order to make a go of it? So what prompted Dinner with the Schnabel? So where did this idea come from and what inspired the story? Well, this one was a little bit different. In all my other cases, as I've jumped around kind of different genres and types of books, um, I've always been led by the idea. Um, but this one I was really led by the times and what we were all going through and I kind of felt that you know I, I started this book actually in March 2020 so um, I, I felt that the world was changing as I was writing it and I felt that you know of course there's an argument against being very specific in novels because you do date them um, but I just thought that the counter argument to that was we were all going through something together that was really historical and remarkable. And because of that, I could address some things very lightly. I could address the actual specifics of the last year very lightly because we were all we all know what it was like. Um, and I could try and capture something about a feeling about what we were all going through. So rather than an idea for this one, I really started with the the what I hoped to evoke in the reader, which was really just to make people smile. That was kind of the goal from the beginning. Yeah, well, you you achieved it. Um, when I read the novel, I felt like it had come into my life at exactly the right time because, you know, we sort of were coming out of yeah. lockdowns and pandemic. And then, you know, it also provided the impetus for Simon's character, didn't it, to be in the position that he was in. So yeah. it did provide a great little plot um, hook there. Oh, that's a lovely thing. I'm really glad you felt it was at the right time because, you know, it's a very, it's a difficult thing to manage for a novelist. And, you know, I've spoken to other people and, and I had the thought in my head that, you know, everything I write from now on will be in the 1970s because, you know, then you don't have to think about how you're going to address it. But I decided to just face it and try and time what what we were, the opening up that I thought we would be feeling right now and try and sum up what uh, part of what I was feeling and, and what I thought other people was were feeling and find a way to um, to use that to reframe some of our joint experiences over the last couple of years. The, one of the things that I really loved about it was I, I sort of felt connected to the characters because of what we'd all been through. But at the same time, I was sort of casting my future eye on it or as a, a reader, you know, 10 or 20 years down the track reading it saying, well, it hasn't been treated really heavy handedly. Like, I don't feel like I'm being dragged through the pandemic. I'm just getting this sort of lovely feeling of, um, well, you know, the relief, really, and just that connection. That's yeah. really lovely. And that's what I was really going for. I didn't want to explain anything or dwell on it yeah. because we all know. 
And I wanted to, you know, this also comes back to my um, fascination with Jane Austen. I just have to mention Jane Austen briefly. Please do. <laughs> If you read her work, you see it's not historical fiction, right? Because she's writing in her time. So she doesn't describe what a, you know, a carriage looks like or or put in details about things because she just assumes everybody knows. So it's and it's up to the reader to kind of jump in and swim with her as she's she's going. If you contrast that with historical fiction that's written now in the same period, they have to be a lot more careful about setting the scene because they don't have that assumption of everybody being in that world and knowing what the frocks look like and what a, you know, curricle or whatever those horse-drawn <laughs> things are and, you know, all that. Um, so I thought I could use that kind of vibe and and not explain anything. I can have a couple of masks in the bottom of bags and a couple of perspex shields or something like that and everybody knows. So I can write a book about the pandemic without really mentioning the pandemic because I like I imagine most other people do not want to read one more word about it. No. So I kind of thought I could achieve both those things at once. Yeah, yeah. It's amazing, isn't it, to think that now we've t- sort of two years down the track, we've got novels in our hands that reference <laughs> something that we've all been through. Like it just feels really strange. Yeah, but I really have to give a shout out to my wonderful editor, Emma, in this because we were always conscious that the book would come out now. It was in the schedule for now. So, and, you know, we I made a best guess. I have a background in science, not epidemiology, but a background in science. I did a bit of research on, on what I thought would be happening now. So back in March 2020, I did a, I, I made a guesstimate. And then we, we kept doing kind of, even after the edits were done, we kept doing kind of sweeps over it to try and keep things feeling real Um, but mind you it's dicey right because another lockdown last month when the book had already gone to print I'm stuffed right because it it no longer has the vibe that I was trying to capture so it was a combination of brilliant work by my editor and a lot of luck and yes some kind of magical foresight there Tony (laughs) (laughs) actually that answers a question that um, the author Cassie Hamer she sent through a couple of questions yeah I know, and she's got a book coming out too uh, in May, her latest novel. Um, but, yeah, she had asked, how do you end the plot of a book in a pandemic setting when the pandemic itself seems never-ending and follows no standard narrative? Yeah, and it was. It was a it was a combination of research. I went back and looked at the 1917 Spanish flu epidemic and how that played out in this country to try and get a feel for how um, the vibe of it was going to go and how the timing of it went. And, you know, it's amazing when you look back, just a small example of that, when you look back at um, things like the shape, of the colour of masks, you know, at the beginning they were very utilitarian, kind of um, whatever fabric was at hand, they would make masks. And then over the course of the next three years, they progressed to being fancier and, you know, nicer fabrics because people were more relaxed about it and and putting their own kind of personality into it. And it wasn't just a rush kind of job anymore. And through things like this, I could see the vibe of it moving. And and so, yeah, we made some estimates of what we thought was going to happen, but we're also really lucky. Amazing. And I hasten to add, listeners, that this novel is not about the pandemic. No. <laughs> it does just provide... Don't say a, the P word, Michelle. Don't say the P word. It's not at all about the pandemic, really. It just provides a sort of a plot device. And I was just really curious to see how Tony handled that. So 
take us through the process of writing Dinner with the Schnabels. How did the process of putting it on the page start for you and what did your writing practice look like throughout? Well, I'm a pantser, so I really never know what I'm doing from one day to the next. And for me, that's a really vital part of the process because um, I have to keep the energy of the work up. I try and have every sentence to to have its own energy. I focus a lot on the shape of sentences and the strength of the verbs. So if I had plotted it all out in advance and wrote sections in order to get down what I'd pre-plotted onto the page, I truly don't think it would have that exploratory kind of feel. That idea of making it up as I go along has an effect on the page, but it also has an effect on me because I genuinely don't know what's happening. <laughs> so if I want, if I really do enjoy the story, which I usually do, I, I have to sit down and do it in order to find out what's going to happen. Like there's no, I can't, I can't write it in my head. I can't, you know, it's not like I go, I'm in any way finished with the story as I'm going. I haven't yeah. drafted it. It's, there's no ending. Um, so I think that is something that keeps my work rate up and my enthusiasm up and sets me in the chair every day. Yeah, so even though you don't plot out the novel, do you work to a word count every day? Or I do. Um, now that, you know, again, I don't want to uh, leave emerging writers with the idea that this is normal because I've been doing this for quite a while now. Yeah. But my, I do a 1,000 words a day and um, I will do a 1,000 words a day. And that yeah. is rain, hail, shine whatever, I do a thousand words a day. Um, But I'm not fooled into thinking that's the work, right? All that stuff about the word count is just to keep the front analytical part of my brain occupied while the unconscious mind kind of gets to work. Um, So I'm very clear that that, uh, even though it's essential that that I keep a track of my word counts and I keep um, keep it all in a little journal and I, I, I make all kinds of little notes, none of that really matters <laughs> what matters is what's going on in the back of my head and if I can fool the front of my head into getting out of my own way that's a good thing so when does the back of the head come into its own in the rewrite or I oh, know so every day every, every day. day I sit down I go what what's going to happen today yeah and and something will happen and I you know um, some days, of course, are easier than others. We all experience that. Mm. Um, some days are really different. Some days are a thousand words goes in like four hours and I'm finished by after lunch. But other days are really long and difficult. But I know now from the, you know, 12 years or f- 14 years I've been doing this that, um, in fact, it's longer. I'm sorry, it's 16 years I've been doing this. <gasps> wow. I know now that um, when I look back at the end of the manuscript, over the course of things, I do very little tidying up as I go through. Maybe I do an hour in the morning, tidying up a bit of the day before, before I start. But when I get to the end of the draft and I look back over the work and I don't do a lot of tidying up on the way through, um, I can't tell which are the easy days and which are the hard days by looking at the quality. Gee, that's amazing. And so because you've been writing so long, you just know to trust in the process. Yes. It's a hard day. It's I just have to trust. It's faith in the process. It's faith yeah. in yourself. It's getting out of your own way. Um, it, it, I, this is a, it's like jumping off a cliff, really. You, you've got to just believe that the story is there somewhere and you can find it. So the whole novel is told from the perspective of Simon. What prompted you to write A, from a male perspective, and B, in just one voice? 
Well, I, I actually prefer doing one voice. I've done a number of novels. I did Nine Days, which has nine voices, and I did The Fragments, which has two. Um, but on some level, I feel they're a little bit cheaty. I feel like there's something about it that goes where I go, um, I've chosen those formats because for that story, I would have been unable to sustain the story in one voice. So I feel like it's a higher uh, task. It's a higher degree of difficulty, but more rewarding if I can control the, the voice and control the point of view consistently for the whole novel. And this one, I've, I've raised the level of difficulty again because I've given myself a confined time period of only six days. Mm. So that's a kind of a slight little technical challenge. Um, the fact that it was from a bloke, that, <laughs> that actually was a bit controversial because when I came up with that idea, I thought, oh, my God, what is my publisher going to say to that? And I very rarely do this, but I actually rang her and said, how would you feel about it if it was a bloke? And, and she, you know, bless her heart, said, you know, it's fine. You don't, it just it depends how you do it, not, not who, not that. So, but I, but, you know, it was on my mind enough that I rang her and, and ran it past her, which reveals, you know, that, that even I thought it was a slightly controversial decision. <laughs> um, but I just felt that um, for the things that I was going to be talking about, the, the loss of identity that comes with the financial and career hits that so many people have had over um, the last few years, I think it was useful to use a bloke because there are more issues. Uh, this is a sweeping generalisation, Michelle, but I think men might be more vulnerable to um, the the kind of uh, blows that are attached to ego and mental health that come with having your career derailed. Mm-hmm. Because for many of them, that's everything to them. That's their life, isn't it? It's their, their identity. It's the definition of themselves. So in order to to talk about the things I wanted to talk about, I mean, of course I could have chosen a um, kind of career woman and I've been a career woman and I know how devoted I was to that career extremely, but I just felt that it would make a more interesting perspective if I if I told it from a bloke's perspective. And also because I really love this family and this family is all about strong women. And I thought in the introduction to the family, it was quite useful to have that first book. I See, because I'm planning yeah. a series, right? I want more. I want more of Schnabel's. So I thought the first book would be handy if it was someone slightly outside the family and maybe someone who's not like the overpowering and strong personalities of the women in the family. I love that because I really want to know more about all of them. Tansy, oh, so Gloria. Oh, my Gloria. My goodness. What a character she is. That's fantastic. I'm so glad. <laughs> yes, please. More Schnabels in the future. <laughs> Um, so just speaking about themes then, is that one of the really big themes that you wanted to tackle was that um, loss of identity and that Very derailment? Yeah. I mean, we've all been there, right? I, mm. I can remember being unemployed when I was about, I would say, 23 and legit thinking my life is over. Like if I couldn't get a job, no one wanted to hire me, like the impossibility of getting out of bed that comes with this feeling of, of a lack of use. And of course, of course, it's ridiculous, right? Of course, it's rubbish. It's because we've all bought into this late capitalism that says, if you're not productive, you're nothing. And of course, it's nonsense. But that doesn't stop you feeling that. Um, So I wanted to look at someone who feels that, who's had really a very difficult couple of years on a lot of levels, 
and is having trouble getting off the couch and and how can him and the people around him try and put that that life back together yeah were there any other themes that you sort of wanted to tackle in the novel well i'm always very interested in the dynamics of families because i think we do um siblings in a family have always been of great interest to me um because we do to some degree play out the roles that we have through our birth order and adult siblings replay those dynamics from their childhood and um also siblings are different slightly different with each member of the family and parents are different parents with each child so relationships is something i really like exploring and family relationships are just fascinating to me they're gold for a novelist right aren't they <laughs> so in terms of simon's voice how did you work your way into his voice every day like when you sat down to write each day how did you channel your inner simon well, it's method acting, isn't it, really? Right. I mean, fiction writing, um, the, my first four books were first person. And that was really because back then I, I honestly could not grasp third person. I couldn't work out. Sounds so stupid now that I can do it. But for, I tried for those four, first four books. I tried intermittently to accomplish something in the third person. The best I ever did was a short story, which I had to write in the first person first and then go through and, and swap it back. <laughs> yeah, because I, I couldn't like when I wrote in the first person at the beginning of my career, I was very clear that the camera was square between the eyes of this person and seeing the world from their perspective. And my my exercise was the um, protection tending to be that person and notice what they would notice and and live as they would live and, and do it that way. But when you're third person, the camera is not squarely behind the eye of the person, slightly to the side. There are other things being noticed by another, by a narrator who is fractionally apart from the point of view of your protagonist. And for the longest time, I couldn't make that work in a practical and technical sense. And uh, it was the fragments that I finally said, right, I'm going to get this working by hook or by crook and after a few false starts finally I think I got my head around how that worked and now thankfully it's not so hard for me now but it's that whole thing about if I was that person what would I be seeing which to me is the glory of fiction right it's, a, it's an act of empathy it's an act of saying this is not me I am not a 42 year old family man who's lost his business and his home um, but if I were what would life be like for me? How might I be feeling? How might I justify myself to myself? And how might I see the people around me? So I think if I do that work, that empathetic work while writing the book, I'm setting the reader up for the same sort of empathetic work when they're reading the book. Hmm. And, and how might those other characters in the novel see him as well? And that comes yes. through via, so you use dialogue really beautifully in the novel to convey that. So we're getting a sense of Simon and what, what other people think of Simon just from the things they're saying to him. That's so great that you, you saw that because it, even though this is third person Simon, I'm actually trying to juggle three points of view here because I'm trying to get the reader to see like Simon's not lying at any point, right? He's telling exactly the truth as he perceives it. But I'm trying to encourage the reader to understand that he's not always accurate in the things that he describes. And I'm trying to allow enough of other people's points of view, only revealed through their dialogue, no in, inner thoughts about what they think about Simon to come through as well. So I, I love this idea of 
the inside of someone and the outside of them not quite matching, the way they see themselves not quite matching the way other people see them and other people all having a different, you know, view of them than they have of themselves. So it's actually kind of competing points of view all within the same third person. Yeah. There's a lovely example of that when Mia, Simon's daughter, she has to get picked up from school because she's done something wrong at school and so she thought she was doing something right but you know she's been she's been sent home and Simon goes and picks her up and drops her off at his mother-in-law's and Gloria's quite a formidable uh, woman and she sort of sweeps across and you know gathers Mia up and says it's not your fault darling you know this can all be blamed on the parenting I'm par- paraphrasing here but yes. you know and gives yes. Simon this look you know <laughs> it's like, okay so it gives us a very clear picture of what Simon's mother-in-law really thinks about Simon because she's got these little niggling things that she's always saying to him and giving him a bit of a hard time. I'd like to say passive-aggressive, but it's really just aggressive-aggressive. Yes, it's aggressive There's not really any passive in it. Um, I just wanted to, there's a, a description of Gloria in here that I just thought would be fun to read out. When they pulled up in Gloria's driveway, she was in the front yard. She wore a tight pair of black and white checked pants that finished at her mid calf a black fluffy sweater, flat shoes and cat's eye sunglasses, like she was a retired go-go dancer from an Elvis movie. Her yard was bordered by a hedge so flat with sides so vertical that it looked like a piece of green cubist street furniture, as though it would support your weight if you sat on it. Other shrubs were tortured into perfect balls, cones and spirals. For a normal person, this would mean constant maintenance, Gloria, Simon suspected, had her plants so terrified they didn't dare put a leaf wrong. (laughs) I love that. Yes, I think that's very nerve-wracking for Simon when she has the shears. (laughs) Yes, this woman is not to be trifled with. That's right, that's right. I love her. Thank you. So how did you eventually nail that third person? Was there something that you read that thought oh that's the way I could do it you know how sometimes you have those light bulb moments when you're reading other people's work I do I do um so this is not the same voice but possibly this is something that opened me up to the potential of this voice which was less do you know that novel less yes it won the Pulitzer Prize for fiction yes oh my god that book so fantastic very different voice it's actually kind of um, first person masquerading as third person. It's a, it's a very different voice, better, of course, much more complex. But it really awoken me to the possibility of the things that you could do on that specific level, on a sentence level, because, you know, it's it's all fine talking about the intention of the voice across a manuscript in, in broad terms. But, of course, this is expressed in sentences. How does each individual sentence work mm. to make that impression, to give that um, feeling that you're going for. So even though less is not that voice, it it kind of made me realise there was a, a level of potential that perhaps I wasn't exploring in third person up to now. And there's a sequel this year. Oh my god, I can't I wait. Love, oh my god, I love yeah. it. Have you heard him being interviewed? He's fabulous, Andrew. What's no, his name? Andrew Sean Greer. Greer. Yeah. Yeah. Sean Greer. Yeah. I just that book really just blew my mind at, the, at what he was achieving with so that voice. Good. And it made me want to um, really do do more interesting and semi-experimental things. Because what I like about it is, unless you're really looking, it's easy to read, right? It doesn't. It's not jumping up and down with like Ulysses or you know something incredibly difficult. 
it reads like a normal voice. It's only when you really look hard at it that you can see it's doing all these other things under the surface. Yeah, that's fascinating. Very excited to hear there's a sequel. I'd love to talk to you about what happens when you sit down to write a scene or a chapter. Do you think about what that scene needs to achieve, uh, you know, character development or moving the story forward, etc.? Or is it more intuitive when you sit down to write those thousand words? It's much more intuitive. My experience with teaching fiction as well as with writing fiction is that you either draft long and cut it back or you draft short and you expand it. And I draft short and expand it. So when I'll sit down and write, you know, a first day, I'll sit down and write a scene and it might be the full thousand words will be the scene. And that's not right. (laughs) Um, And the next day... I will read that scene over and see how thin it is, um, especially, you know, the weakest point of my writing is description. Okay. Um, so I'm, I loved that you pulled out one of the description part because I find them the most difficult and I know that's a weak spot. Um, so it's something I have to work really hard on and I, I have to look back over the work and think, you know, in contrast, I find dialogue fun and easy. If I had my way, it would everything would be dialogue. So um, I, I kind of can't lean on dialogue any more than I already do, which is already a lot. And I've got to force myself to, to put myself in the shoes of the reader. You're seeing this scene for the first time or you're meeting these people. Um, what are significant things that tell you something about their character from the outside? Like how do I work? How do I make that description work harder than just placing somebody in a spot? Um, so that's, you know, for example, Gloria and her surgically sharp, you know, <laughs> gardening influence. <laughs> um, she, that says something about her character, yes. right? That, that, that it's not just the fact that it's not a coincidence that she's a woman with surgically sharp gardening tools. She's that way on the inside as well. So it's not just about painting a picture mm. in terms of description. It's about choosing elements of that description that reveals something about character in a way that's interesting and maybe novel, if you're lucky, and has a freshness to it. So this is something that I find really difficult and challenging. And almost always in early drafts, uh, like when I look back over the work after the first draft, really, the descriptions are the rubbishest part. And not only are they rubbish to read, <laughs> um, there's no consistency. I, characters move, change heights, hair colours, eye colours, <laughs> face shapes. Like I just can't picture them, but I can hear them, right? So it's the dialogue that does the work in, in that instance. So part of my job in the re, in the tidying things up or the, the second draft is to go back and think, okay, this is a good spot for description that I've omitted <laughs> on the way through what is something about that person, you know, and then I have to start making decisions about what they actually look like and what the houses look like. I'm forever getting trouble about, you know, floor plans not making sense. And if somebody's standing at that door, how can they see that bedroom or whatever it is? Because these things are just not, the pictures of them in my head do not come easily. So all that has to be sorted out after. Which feels like it should be the least important part of fiction where people stand and everything, but you're right. It's it's You've got to place characters in time and, and place, don't you? It's, it's really important. Because I want the reader to actually feel like they're there, right? And it's happening, it's unfolding right in front of them. And if I don't make that scene, and also I don't like uh, things that are very telling. 
So I would never say something about like, well, hopefully I would never, I'm sure I have, but my intention would be never to say, you know, Gloria is a scary person or, you know, worse, Simon thinks Gloria is a scary person. I would much rather have uh, my mother-in-law has a collection of surgically (laughs) sharp gardening tools, you know, like, so it's about using those descriptions to make the reader feel real so that it feels really vivid and so that it feels like it's absolutely unfolding right then and there and I think that's what keeps readers in scenes because they can see it happening and I think that's what adds up to a book being unputdownable which is kind of my goal. You you gave yourself a description challenge didn't you by making this garden the centre of the sort of external plot. And, and, I li- and I live in a warehouse apartment, right, with, de- like, dead house plants. I'm, I'm just, I'm not a gardener, so I had to really, like, I Google everything, but it's, it, I had to really kind of imagine, again, that, that act of empathetic sort of absorption. If I was a family, you know, what would I think would be the, the greatest garden? Like, what, what is a beautiful garden? And how, how are gardens a metaphor for the internal life that we've all lived over the past couple of years. So we haven't got out as much as we would. We've partly lost our connection with outdoors and with nature. And and how can I use a garden to symbolise kind of a, a rebirth and perhaps reframing some of those experiences to be more positive than they might appear at first glance. And an opportunity for you to flex your description muscle, Tony. <laughs> oh, flex is maybe the, the wrong word, maybe pathetically exercise. Oh. I was there. I was there in that garden. It was a beautiful garden. Well done. Gorgeous. So we talked a bit, little bit about editing there, so I thought maybe we would just follow that through. Can you take us through some of the editorial process for Dinner with the Schnabels? Were there any sort of standout additions or deletions? Yeah, look, I had a, a, a great editor for this book, Emma Rafferty. I've not worked with her before. And probably the most important thing that she, like she added an enormous amount to the book, but if I had to pick out the one thing is that um, I, I said to her early on in the process, before she had read anything, that I go too far, right? I go too far. And what do you mean you go too far? I, go, I always, see, you don't read it on the page because it's not there on the page, but I take the jokes too far, take the scenes too far. Everything is a little bit too far, a little bit too long and a little bit too over the top. And that's when it stops being funny. And my justification for going too far is that if I edit myself on the way through and tell myself that's too far I never get to enough you know I can't um I don't know know how quite to explain it if I was telling myself don't go too far don't go too far in fact I would underwrite so I I have to let myself overwrite and I I said to her you know this is my problem I go too far and she said, oh, I'm sure you don't. She's a very polite person. I'm sure you don't. I'm sure that'll be fine. So I handed in. She goes, yeah, too far, too far, too far, and too far. And I'm going, great. So so having knowing that she's my a safety net there, so she could say this joke, like just halve it, and this scene, just take out the last page and a half because just end it here, it gives me permission to be as imaginative and kooky as I need to be to get somewhere in the knowledge that that's not going to be the thing that appears in the end. 
So I felt a great sense of kind of safety and security with that, that I could knock myself out and be kind of stupid. Like there's a scene where Simon meets with some young architects who are just building up their business. And that scene was also longer and descended into a lot more stupidity. But I I don't think I would have got, but as it is now, I think I love that scene, but I don't think I could have gotten there had I not allowed myself to kind of relax and go wild. I'm sort of picturing, you know, the big dibber at Luna Park where you have to sort of, you have to gather that speed and go down the hill in order to get up to the other side. Yeah, you know what I mean? Because if you don't that's get that good. momentum, yeah. you'll never make it up. That's exactly right. And I, yeah. I need the, the, the freedom to be stupid <laughs> and yeah. go too far in order to, to get it where I need to be. But I need to have the confidence that I've got someone beside me who's going to go, yeah, it was funny up to here, but because you've pushed it now, this it's not funny now, this needs to come out. So to me, like she did a lot of great things, but but those um, chopping bits out was really crucial, I think. Yeah, yeah. Well, now that we're talking about your sense of humour, Tony, we were talking before about what potentially binds all of your novels and it is, I think, this quirky sense of humour. Like, it's just fantastic, That's you so know. nice. The yeah. Elvis go-go dancers being a case in point. And there's such a great balance, again, in this novel between the sort of pathos and the humour. Why is it important to have both of those things and how hard is it to get that balance right? I mean, you've talked about going too far, but sort of that balance between the, the heart and the humour. To me, this is everything. This is the, mm. the most important thing about fiction, about making fiction that's honest. Um, of course, there are heaps of very happy books that are very funny and lighthearted and you know, in Australia particularly, we are great at really dire, grim fiction. We have a lot of <laughs> really, really grim books. Yep. <laughs> um, yep. <laughs> to me, neither of those extremes are very are a very honest reflection of the world because the world is incredibly tragic and incredibly absurd at the same time. And I think both those things work best in contrast with the other thing because you can only see the absurdity and the humour sometimes when it's against the tragedy and you can only really feel the tragedy when it's against the, the general comedy of life. I feel life is very absurd. I'm, I just always feel that we are, you know, little children dressed up in our parents' clothes trying to pretend that we know what we're doing and we just do not know what we're doing. So uh, I really work hard at keeping that balance between the happy and the sad. I haven't always got it right in some of my other books, but it's a really important thing for me and it's very much a goal. Which books do you feel like you didn't get that balance right? I I think Tiny Useless Hearts is too too light. Okay. I think there's a central tragedy there, but I didn't bring it out enough. And if I had my go again with that book, I would have made that sadder. Mm. Um, And I think Nine Days is possibly not funny enough. It's the other way. I've leaned too hard the other way. But this one has the mix that I was trying to get to. Simon is a man who, you know, I never like to label my characters and I've never done it in the past and I don't want to start now because Mm. it's really up to readers to decide what Simon is going through. And I've had readers say to me pretty much, Simon is a lazy shit who needs to think about his family and get off the couch. And I've had other readers say, Simon is in the middle of a depressive episode and needs as much help as he can possibly get and and all kinds of reactions in between those extremes. Um, so the idea that I can um, 
capture somebody at this point of his life, which is absolutely objectively a terrible place for him to be and allow people to see the lightness in that and hopefully allow him to see the lightness in that is, I think that's a worthwhile goal for this book. Yeah, I do too. It's just gorgeous. I'd love to ask you about your PhD here, Tony, and how you've been influenced by, you mentioned Jane Austen and the other two writers were Moliere and is that how you pronounce it? That's right. And Nora Ephron, who I also love. Tell me about that and how how those three writers and that PhD influenced your writing. Well, look, it was, you know, I know that a, a lot of fiction writers have PhDs and uh, for me it was a complete indulgence because I, I've written fiction for a long time and at some point you have to think about the reader. But the, <laughs> the, the fantastic part of a PhD is you just don't. Like six people have read it, doesn't matter, right? I can do whatever I want. Yep. So it was a really an indulgence that was only really financially possible for me because Nine Days is, is on the VC English list here in Victoria. So this is a book that came out in 2012 that is now being read in bigger numbers than it ever has been before. So I had a little bit of breathing space, a financial breathing space where I didn't have to think about what was going to come next. So I decided to do something flippant for myself, which was the PhD. The PhD is about the genre of romantic comedy and whether these three famous writers from the past were what I would, under my definition, what I would call romantic comedy writers. And my thesis is that Moliere was a romantic comedy writer. He's always considered not to be. Um, but I think that's because uh, he's a bloke and, yeah. very, and a genius and romantic comedy has what what... I call in the PhD a low cultural value. Therefore, a, a bloke genius cannot ha- have done it. But I've made, I've made the argument that I think he did. I've made the argument that I think Jane Austen did not. I, I think she was very much a rationalist, age of reason kind of writer who has been read in a romantic age. And I think when you look at the works on the lines on the page, you know, for example, the the successful proposals pretty much bore her. She's just not interested. So in, in Pride and Prejudice, there's three proposals. There's Mr. Collins proposing to Lizzie. There's, there's Darcy's first terrible one Wondrous. where he says, I like you about, <laughs> I like you despite my better judgment, yeah, that one. Despite and your family. The, that's right. And then there's the third one, which is Darcy's second proposal, which is successful. Mm. And the first two she describes in exquisite detail every line of dialogue and the third nothing you get nothing because the actual romantic bits the weddings she skims over the wedding in in emma goes like this the wedding was much as you would expect a wedding between these two people to be that's it (laughs) like she's just not interested in the in the gooey bits you could make an argument for persuasion the letter from captain wentworth that is really gorgeously romantic but I think that's an aberration it's a really only genuinely romantic element in in the six books so I make the argument that she's not really a a romantic and I make the argument that Nora Ephron yes they are romantic comedies her films but there's a whole lot more going on Mm. she's very much a postmodern experimental uh, writer in, in the same way as someone like Tarantino is, but she's not given anywhere near the 
the intellectual admiration that that she deserves. Yeah, I agree. When I read that you had um, done this PhD and I saw Nora Ephron, I thought, oh, there's definitely some Ephron-esque, you know, feeling to Dinner with the Schnabels, you know, that kind of that wry, (laughs) turning that wry eye and that comedic. Yeah, absolutely gorgeous. Well, the three of them are my absolute, like, life goals. I just think they're... The, the most, um, that wry humour, as you say, that slightly satirical view of the world that all three of them had are just fantastic. And the thing that I enjoyed most about the PhD is that I divided it into thirds, so the first third Moliere and then Jane Austen and then Nora Ephron, and I wrote each third in the style, in their style. So the first third is um, written in rhyming couplets like a play from from the 17th century and then the middle bit is written like a Jane Austen story and then the last bit is written as a screenplay. So I tried to mimic their voices as well as make these arguments. So the whole thing was just fun, fun, fun. That is so cool. Is there any chance you'll publish that and let us all have a look? <laughs> um, look, it's pretty dry, but but it's certainly de- you can certainly download it. But, um, yeah, it's um it just it made me really happy and it's something that it's probably one of the things I'm most proud of. Yeah, you can do, definitely do worse than those three, right, as your <laughs> writing inspiration. I um, just reread Heartburn again recently and I listen to it every now and then because it's narrated, the audiobook's narrated by Meryl Streep, who also played right. yes. the main yes. character in the movie. And it just, I don't know, makes me smile and laugh. It's very, very good. Yeah, it still works, I think, it, after all this time. It really, really does, yeah. I mean, marriages are the same through the ages and relationships yeah. are the same through the ages. The dynamics are pretty much the same, so not much changes there. It's relatable and still hilarious. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. I just also wanted to ask you about backstory. I loved the flashback in uh, Chapter 18 when Simon meets Tansy, his wife, for the first time, and uh, I loved all the kind of references there. Um, there was, I think, the reference to Lost and they're using <laughs> Razor mobile phones, you know, the flip phones. Um, do you have any general rules you follow when it comes to when and how to incorporate backstory? I am so, yes, a yes. hundred times yes, Michelle. I feel that emerging writers particularly use flashbacks way too early. Right. Many, many writers have internalised this great advice of show, don't tell, and they want to tell something. They're busting to tell something. So they write it in a flashback so that they can be explicit and then they pop it at the front of the book. So, you know, Phyllis is frightened of clowns. They can't wait to tell you that when she was two, you know, a clown, something happened, right? But but this is this question, why she's scared of clowns, is part of the narrative question that drives readers through the book, right? It's part of the the reason people read. So they, the reason they turn the pages is, I wonder why she's frightened of clowns, right? So I, I truly believe that flashbacks in most, I mean, there's never a 100% rule, but in many cases are too early. And the second half of the book, the last third of the book really, is when you lose control of the pace. So, you know, you've got all this stuff to build up. You've got a world to create at the beginning of the book. There's heaps to be doing and sucking people into this narrative question and giving people a reason to turn the pages. So don't answer the questions then. So hold that off and use those flashbacks. You can still write them. You know, you can still have flashbacks. But 
in the last half of the novel is when you start losing control of the pace and you start getting those stodgy middles, as we all have, um, and you can start to think about, okay, now I'll start to answer some of these narrative questions. Like why did, how did Simon and Tansy get together in the first place? How did that happen? So you can kind of ration out those answers to the questions in a little bit more of an enticing way rather than just dumping everything straight off. Um, so it, it's not that I'm anti-flashback. I just think they can be used in a more strategic way. And for the record, listeners, uh, this flashback doesn't occur until page 139. So we're well into the novel, aren't we, Tony? Yeah, that that's right. We're well underway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I, I noticed you are quite sparse with the backstory. <laughs> and I don't feel like I missed it at all. Like until that point, I was like, oh, this is a lovely little gift in the middle of the novel, seeing how Simon and Tansy got together. It's just often too explainy for me. I would rather try and set that up it, I'd rather than make you know, the dynamics of a relationship or some event explicit, I would rather have that very subtly introduced in dialogue. I'd rather be more subtle about those things. So I do use them, but I try to be very sparing. Because also you're taking people out of the story. You're literally lifting them up from a story that you're telling them you're trying to make as engrossing as possible. You're, re you're relieving that pressure of whatever is happening in the story. You're popping them somewhere else. You're, you're physically moving the reader's attention. And my goal is always to try and keep reader, readers in the story. Like when someone says to me, you know, it was 2 a.m. and I have to go to work tomorrow, but I couldn't put it down. Like that is the best feeling in the world. So I'm always, I, I try not to release that pressure unless it's absolutely necessary. So I needed a little break. I needed to contextualise that relationship a little bit. Um, so I did put a flashback there, but I'd be strategic. Definitely some good lessons there. I just want to go back to the other question that Cassie Hamer has. She said she read an interview with you recently where your advice for writers was to take risks and she wondered, wonders what was the writing risk you took with Dinner with the Schnabels? Um, I think any time you label something a comedy, you're really asking for it because a sense of humour, the sense of humour that we all have is incredibly individualistic and you're almost daring somebody to say it's not funny. So I'm convinced that there will be <laughs> lots of people um, who've read it who will say, I did not think that was funny. It's a real declaration. And really, it's it's a dare almost for someone to disagree with you. Um, but I really felt that because of the kind of book it is and the timing of it, as we've discussed, I needed to be explicit about what my intentions were with it. Yeah. Um, I didn't want it to be one of those books that were were sneaky about what it was doing. So I felt like I had to, to do that. And, of course, people, some people will not have the same sense of humour as me. That's fine. It's like the um, difference between American humour and British humour, isn't it? Yeah, like some people yeah. just aren't going to get it. Yeah, that, yeah, they're just not going to align with what I think is funny. Yeah. So you just got to wear that. But I thought it's better to be upfront about what my intentions were with it. Yeah, yeah. You're also an accomplished writing teacher. Is there anything else like a great piece of advice that you think emerging writers or even experienced writers should know? Possibly the most popular exercise that I used to do when I taught writing was I used to tell people to have two books on their desk, two copies of novels on their desk. And one copy, one book was the novel that they wished they had have written, like the novel that when they read it, they think to themselves, 
if I can write something ever half as good as that, I'm going to die happy. Like their absolute kind of dream book. And for me, that probably would be Zadie Smith's White Teeth. Talking about the balance between humour and pathos, I think it's so perfect. And it inspires me every time I reread it and I reread it a lot. So my dream book would be Zadie Smith's White Teeth. And then I advise people to have a second book on their desk. And this would be the book that has done well. You know, it's been around or it's won a prize or it's, you know, certainly, you know, achieved something and you hate it. You really hate it. And you read it and you go, what was all the fuss about? We've all had books like that, right? I know you're smiling at me, Michelle, you know, exactly the kind of book I'm talking about. Everybody has a book where they go, I can't believe that people liked that. So somewhere between those two extremes is you, right? Somewhere between I'd die if I ever wrote something half as good as this and if this piece of shit can get published then so can I, you are somewhere in the middle there, right? So you can feel that you're not alone in this and the manuscript you're working on is not the first manuscript ever in the history of the world. Your manuscript is part of a a community of manuscripts, if you like, and it fits in among other manuscripts and there will be better manuscripts than yours and there will be worse. And your job is to see that you're not trying to reinvent the wheel here. You're tr trying to um, make a story that is going to speak to people and you belong somewhere in those two extremes. And I feel that that's an empowering exercise for emerging writers. I love that. That's such great advice. Thank you, Tony. What are you writing at the moment? Well, I've just finished Schnabel's 2, oh. um, which is the about Kylie, Tansy's older sister. Right. Um, so I'm just about to start editing that next week. And we'll see how that turns out. That's fantastic because we don't know much about Kylie, no. do we? No, we meet her a couple of times. but So, you know, none of my characters in this story and in many of my other stories are very exceptional people. Like there's, they're, no, they're not famous people. They're not incredibly talented at anything people. They're just normal people. I like normal people because I don't think there is such a thing as a normal person. I think everybody is a special person and people that look unassuming from the outside have a deep and abiding and fascinating interiority that you can't guess from the outside. Yeah. So part of what I'm trying to do with the these two books is look at someone who maybe you don't know very well or, or that nothing particular jumps out at you and look at what's going on inside them. Um, and that's a subject that's really of constant interest to me. Well, that is very exciting. I look forward to reading Schnabel's too. Lunch with the Schnabel's, breakfast, brunch. <laughs> we could work. You could not only work through all the Schnabel's, you could work through all the meals of the day, Tony. And, you know, I was at an event last week in Brisbane and a lady came up and said, I've got an idea for another, Schna no, in Noosa, actually. I've got an idea for a title for one of the other books, Schnabel Gazing. <laughs> oh, my God. I laughed so hard, like wine came out my nose thought it was so good schnabel gazing. oh i love it tony thank you so much again for joining me today it's been such a pleasure i've been such a fan i've listened to you over the years talking about writing and i knew when i started the podcast that i wanted to have you on so it's just been a delight thank you i've loved every minute of it michelle thank you there you go tony jordan i hope you got a few good writing insights out of that chat tony's just so good isn't she 
And I love the fact that she's able to write full-time now because her book, Nine Days, is on the VCE curriculum. Honestly, it couldn't happen to a more wonderful writer. You can find out more about Tony and her novels at her website, tonyjordan.com, and you'll find a link to her Facebook account there too. And really, if you haven't already read Dinner with the Schnabels, go pick it up. It's just such a fantastic novel. And uh, you can come back and listen to this podcast and get all those great writing tips and and sort of understand exactly what we were talking about when uh, she was referring to things like dialogue and description. Um, It's all there to learn from. So now to our May author. I'm very excited to introduce you to the one and only Nigel Featherston. To read through Nigel's bio is to really be astonished by the breadth and quantity of his output. He's written plays and scores and novellas and short stories and countless fiction and non-fiction pieces for some of Australia's most prominent literary journals. So I'd say he knows a thing or two about writing. My entree to Nigel's writing was his 2018 novel Bodies of Men, which I absolutely adored. It's just such an elegant, tender, evocative novel. I highly recommend you go and have a read of that novel as well as his new one, My Heart is a Little Wild Thing. Isn't that such a divine title? Comes out on the 4th of May, which as I'm recording this podcast is tomorrow. As always, you can buy a copy in all the usual places. Or if you'd like a chance to win a copy of the novel, just head over to my Instagram or Facebook where you'll find instructions on how to enter. Thank you very much to Ultimo Press for that. Entries close on May 10th, but of course, if you're listening to this podcast in the future, there's a new giveaway every month. So just keep an eye on the Writers Book Club socials or sign up to my newsletter at michellebarraclough.com. Now, my quarterly newsletter is actually coming out next week, and I have two new books to give away in that as well, just to newsletter subscribers. Now, it's to all newsletter subscribers, not just the new ones, so everyone who subscribes goes in the draw. The two books are, drumroll, So Many Beats of the Heart by Carrie Cox, and the brand new novel by Cassie Hamer, which is called The Truth About Faking It. So make sure you sign up at michellebarraclough.com if you want to go in the draw to win one of those two novels. Okay, that is it for this month. Whatever you're doing in May, I hope it's productive and that you get a few words down and that the weather behaves itself in your part of the world. I recorded today's episode on the beautiful, unceded lands of the Garigal people of the Eora Nation. Thanks for listening and I'll catch you next month. Until then, happy writing. Happy writing.